Now, typically, when I, I preach, I like to start out with a lighthearted joke or a funny little anecdote. Um, <clears throat> but today, um, I feel like I need to start off with something um, a little bit more difficult to share. Um, <clears throat> Many of you know that um, I've been a, a longtime fan of the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> this is hard for me. Um, they've been my favorite team since I was in third grade. Okay, third grade was a long time ago. I'm a loyal person. I picked them when I was in third grade, and I'm still loyal to them today. Um, but when people find out that I'm a fan of the Atlanta Braves, I typically get asked two questions. The first one is, oh, are you from Atlanta? And then when I share, no, I'm raised right here in Salem. The next question is, well, then how did you become a Braves fan? Well, my fandom is a product of cable television. Um, they were always on TV. Um, <laughs> I didn't pick them because they were good. I picked them because they were on. They were actually a terrible baseball team. Um, maybe you've heard of a man named Ted Turner. Um, Ted Turner, he was the kind of the founder of CNN, which was the first cable station that had news on 24 hours a day. And he also owned this cable station called Turner Broadcasting System, or WTBS. And that was the station the Atlanta Braves were always on. Like I said, they were terrible, but guess what? Ted Turner also owned the Braves. So no one else would play this horrible team on their station. So Ted Turner put them on WTBS. They were always on TV when I got home from school, and that's where um, my um, affection for the Braves started. Well, Ted Turner was a, a pretty colorful fellow. Um, if you heard my sermon last week, we could pretty squarely put Ted Turner in that category of a spiritually unhealthy person. Ted Turner loved to be first, and he certainly had an untamed tongue, didn't he? Well, he was also a, a very outspoken atheist and was quite antagonistic to evangelical Christianity. Um, not exactly the kind of attributes you want to have for the owner of your favorite baseball team. Well, he was speaking one night at a banquet for the American Humanist Association. And I want to share a quote from that speech. Ted Turner said this, I think Jesus would be sick to his stomach over the way his ideas have been twisted. I've been saved seven or eight times, but I gave up on it when despite my prayers, my sister died. The more I strayed from my faith, the better I felt. Those words are so sad on a variety of levels, aren't they? It's sad that his sister died. It's sad that he moved away from his faith. And it's sad to hear how wrong Ted Turner was in his understanding of prayer. Ted needed to hear this parable. Jesus told this parable to a bunch of men who were going to endure hardship and trials. They were going to be persecuted for their faith. And for them, the temptation to give up would be immense. So Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. On one hand, this is the easiest parable in the entire Bible to interpret. I cannot mess this up because Jesus tells us exactly 
why he told the parable. He gives us the big idea right in verse 1. Jesus told this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus knew that times were going to get tough. So they needed to be told, continue praying when you are going to be persecuted for your faith. Continue praying when people mock you for following a man who, came, who, who claimed to be a king. But he didn't wind up on a throne with a gold crown, did he? He wound up on a cross with a crown of thorns. Jesus told him this parable so that they would continue praying when they faced injustice, when they were oppressed and marginalized, and to tell them to keep praying when maybe, just maybe their sister got sick. And she didn't get better, but she died. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been tempted to give up? Have you prayed and prayed about something and waited and then waited some more as you continued to pour out your heart to God, but he didn't respond the way you wanted him to? Have you ever been where Ted Turner was? Have you been to that point where you said, you know, I've tried that prayer thing, but things just didn't go my way, so I quit. Have you ever been to that place where you, you thought, you know, I, I, th- I thought that when I prayed, I was supposed to get an answer and I haven't heard anything, so I guess I'll just give up. If I stop believing in you, God, if I stop caring what you think, if I stop expecting you to answer me, God, then the silence won't hurt so badly. So I guess I'll just quit. Because the further away that I move from my faith, maybe I'll feel better. Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song years ago. And one of their lyrics says, A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Well, that's what happens when you lose your faith and you give up on praying. You see, when you're soft toward God, it hurts when trials come and you have to endure them over time. But if we harden our hearts, if we become like a rock, we won't feel the pain. We won't cry anymore because we have absolutely no expectation that God will ever answer us. Well, Jesus knew that this would be the natural tendency for people when hard times come. So he told this parable to prepare his audience for the reality that in this world, there will be trials. It's promised to us. There will be injustice and there will be pain, but we need to endure and never give up. It's right there in verse one, right? The easiest parable in the Bible to interpret. Well, not so fast. It's also a peculiar parable Because Jesus does something very interesting. He compares his father to a corrupt judge. And then he compares you and I to a widow. Who in equivalent terms today would have been considered lower socially than a homeless person. And I say that with absolutely no disrespect to our homeless population. Our city tends to the needs of our homeless community to a greater extent than the Jewish community tended to widows. So how then do we relate to this parable? Which parts of the story should we embrace and which should we be careful to interpret in their proper context? 
This morning, we're going to take a look at this parable, and I hope that it encourages you as we learn about the judge, the widow, and our standing. What does Jesus teach us? What does the text teach us about the judge? Verse 2 tells us that this man is corrupt. It says he didn't care about what God thought and he didn't care what anyone else thought. The judges in this time didn't have the same reputation that judges in our day today. Our judges are supposed to be kind of the moral authority. They're supposed to be above reproach, right? Well, in this culture, they were known for being totally corrupt. Uh, You could buy them off. So wealthy people had a real easy time in the court system. You could pay off. You could bribe one of these judges. They were not seen as moral men. They had no oversight from the Roman authorities. So they kind of just set up their own rules, their own standards, and their own regulations. This man was corrupt. He didn't care at all what anyone thought about him. Verse 4 said that for some time, he actually refused this lady. This lady that had an issue. She had some sort of injustice she was suffering. And the text tells us that he just flat out refused her. He ignored this woman's request. It wasn't that he didn't hear her. He simply didn't care. He flat out refused to deal with her, to listen to her, or to care at all about what her situation was like. Verse 5, what do we learn? He was wearied by her repeated requests. Eventually, he gave in to her, not because she was right, not because she had a good case, but because he was sickly, he was just annoyed. He was irritated by her repeated request. At last, what do we learn about this judge? Well, he was only concerned about his status and his well-being. He broke, he caved in, and the text tells us the reason why he granted her justice, was because he really was concerned that she would come back and attack him. He was concerned about himself, not her needs at all. He was afraid that she was going to take up all of his time and maybe even tarnish his reputation. He had no concern for her as a person. He was only concerned about his status and his well-being. Well, that's quite a list. It's quite a list of this, this judge who's the, the main, one of the main actors in our, in our parable. Have you ever stood before a judge before? I have. I mean, I mean uh, um, somebody once told me once what it was like to stand in front of a judge. Um, I heard stories. Um, I have. I, I stood before a judge once. I got a speeding ticket that I thought was unjust. So I went and I pled my case. And it's intimidating. It is intimidating. You have this little piece of paper that tells you you're guilty. And you have to stand before someone who has all the authority. And you have to beg them to show you mercy. It's intimidating. Every time I've gotten a prayer request um, from someone who's about to go to court, the prayer requests are always the same. What do people ask for when they're about to go to court? What kind of a judge do they want? They want a judge that's fair. They want a judge that's honest. They want justice to be done. You don't want to stand before a guy like this if you're going to court, do you? This is not the kind of person that you want to arbitrate for you when you have a need, when you are suffering. So here's the question. Why do people give up on prayer? They give up on prayer because they see God like this judge. 
They don't see the results they want, so they quit. They knock, and they knock, and they knock, but they don't get the answer they want, so they quit. My sister is still sick. That tumor isn't shrinking. My husband is still battling that addiction. My wife is still distant, and she doesn't seem to like me very much. My prodigal child still hasn't returned. So God must not care. Or worse, maybe he doesn't even exist. So what's the point? I keep praying and he's not answering. So he must be an unjust judge. Friends, this is where the theodicy problem came from. The the theodicy problem is one of the the oldest apologetic questions that that atheists and skeptics have been levying against the Christian doctrine for, for centuries. The theodicy problem essentially says, if God is all powerful and God is all loving, then evil shouldn't exist. Because if God were powerful enough, he would do something about it. And since evil exists, either he's incapable or he just doesn't care. Friends, this is where that dilemma comes from. I'm still in pain. I'm still suffering injustice. And this God that I'm praying to is not following through. So he must be corrupt. He must not care. People give up on persistent prayers because they seem to fall on uncaring deaf ears. People give up because they think God is corrupt, uncaring, and unconcerned about the request of those who are suffering. Well, friends, I've got good news for you today. God is nothing like this judge. You want a different list? I'll give you one. Watch this. What's our judge like? Our judge is not corrupt. Our judge is holy. God can never choose wrongly. God can never arbitrate wrongly when you bring your request to him. When he hears you plead your case as a just judge, he will always judge perfectly. He has to. Think about this. The first time God messes up the answer to your prayer, the first time he judges wrongly, would you bring your request to him? That is the day he stops being God. Because God cannot contradict his own nature. And his nature is holy. His nature is perfect. So the way that he rules with your request and the timing in which he responds to your request has to be perfect. Because the first time he messes up, he disqualifies himself from being God. He is a holy, perfect, just judge. What else do we know about the one to whom we ought to bring our persistent request? Well, he is caring. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. Peter says, cast all your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. Why does that verse matter? Well, that verse matters because the guy that wrote it was standing there when Jesus told this parable. He was standing there when Jesus said, hey guys, you're going to be tempted to give up. Don't. You're going to be tempted to cash it in when things get difficult. Don't stray from your faith and keep on praying. Peter was standing there. And Peter 
had his own little Ted Turner moment, didn't he? When things got difficult for Peter, when his idea of what it would look like to be a follower of Jesus didn't go his way, he moved from his faith, didn't he? He he isolated himself. He became afraid and he said, no, no, I don't know that guy. Because in Peter's mind, he was supposed to be part of a revolution, right? And now his leader just got arrested. Times got tough for Peter. He had his own little Ted Turner moment because in his despair and in his confusion and in his fear, he said, what's the use? Aligning myself with Jesus is not going to turn out well for me. Why should I persist in having faith? Why should I endure? And he denied Christ. He strayed from his faith and it did not make him feel better, did it? It devastated him. He was wrecked by that decision. He was overcome with grief. But Jesus didn't leave him in his grief and despair, did he? Jesus saw him in his pain. He had compassion for Peter. And after he rose from the dead, he sought Peter out. and had this beautiful moment where he reconciles with Peter. And Peter remembered the kindness that Jesus showed him. And when it was his turn to write this epistle... In it, he puts, cast all your anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. Ironically, I think God is more concerned, more interested in hearing our prayers than we are even inclined to pray them. I'll say that again. I think God is actually more concerned. He is more interested in hearing our prayers than we are even inclined to pray them. God is caring. What else is our judge like? Well, he's patient. This is critical, friends. God will never get worn out by your persistent request. He will never get worn out. The judge did. You and I can get worn out for the parents in the room or maybe anyone that's ever babysat. You ever had that persistent child that really wants your attention? Mom, 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 mom. And what do you do? You yell at your child. You don't you look at me like that. I know you do. Don't look at me like that. You, what? What? The house is on fire. Oh, thanks. Um, (laughs) We naturally can get worn out by that persistent asking, right? God will never get worn out. I remember the, the first time I saw persistent prayer, it was right out, it was my sophomore year in high school. It was right in that time where I started getting serious about my faith and I kind of owned it. I was raised in the Catholic church and, and I have very fond memories, positive memories of being raised in the Catholic church, but I never knew that I could pray my own prayers. I could use my own words. I never knew that I could read the Bible at my own pace instead of what just the, the, the little booklet, the little missile told me to read. So I got connected with a mentor and, and I went to his house one night um, for Bible study. And while we were getting ready for Bible study, his wife was bringing these boxes in and, and rifling through them. She had gotten them out of the attic. And I'm like, Shereen, what are you, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm looking for one of my old prayer journals. I'm like, well, why? What's so interesting about your prayer journal? 
She had been praying for her father to become a Christian for 30 years. He had just put his faith in Christ. And you know what Shireen wanted to do? She wanted to find the very first time she put in her prayer journal, I want my daddy to become a Christian. So she could write answered on it. Can you fathom God up in heaven for 30 years going, Shireen, you're killing me. Stop it already. I'm dying here. Stop it. You are such a pest. He's going to say yes in 30 years. Shush. Can you imagine God being like that? Never. No way. He was loving it. Prayer after prayer. Plea after plea. She wanted her dad to say yes to Jesus. God is patient. He gives us an invitation. He wants us to make our request known to him. The next thing we see about our judge is that his concern is always for the chosen. Jesus tells us at the end of this parable, justice will come. God will bring justice in his time. Yes, the scales of justice are out of balance right now. In a, in a cosmic sense and in a personal sense, there are times that we will suffer. But Jesus said, justice will come. I care. I see you in your pain. I hear your request. Your requests are not falling on deaf, uncaring ears. You see, God hates injustice. And he will deal with it as we wait. That's a much better list, isn't it? See, God is nothing like the unjust judge. Jesus is clearly making a contrast, not a comparison, between the unjust judge and his father. So, what about the widow? What do we learn about her? And how should we interpret her role in this parable? Well, the text tells us that the widow comes alone. The widow has no family. She has, obviously, no husband. She has no status. It was a patriarchal society. And if you didn't have a husband or a son to speak for you, you had no voice. She had no status. Did you know that a woman in the first century, she could witness a murder? She could go before the judge and say, hey, judge, I was standing right there. He did it. It was that guy. And you want to know how much her testimony was worth? Zero. Nothing. This woman brought nothing to the table. She was all alone. She was the most vulnerable person in this society. And that's why the book of James says, pure religion shows itself by defending the most defenseless people in our society, widows and orphans. She had no one to support her. She pleads her own case. She comes alone and she pleads her own case. She had to go to the judge alone because she couldn't afford a lawyer. She certainly couldn't afford to pay him off, to bribe him and get rid of the whole process all at once. She had no resources. She had no influence, no voice, and no one to help her. She had no witnesses to speak on her behalf. She came alone and she pleads her own case. What else do we learn? We learn that her request bothered the judge. 
Her persistent asking annoyed the judge. It is likely that this woman hounded this judge day and night. Um, At this time, judges really didn't have like a courthouse they went to. They kind of would just set up a little tent and, and a little desk and they would arbitrate kind of at different times of the day in different places. So the text gives us the impression that when he would set up uh, his little booth in the morning, this woman was there. When he would take his little booth down and he would go to the marketplace, she was there. When he would go home at night, she was there. She probably had a little stalker in her, okay? But when the judge says, I was afraid she was going to attack me, there's an inference that this woman was on his case. She wasn't just standing in line in the courtroom, She was very persistent, and she was going to find him anywhere he went. And it bothered him. It annoyed the judge. She wore him out, and the judge did finally break. So I ask again, why do people give up on prayer? Why did Jesus need to tell the story? Because sometimes we see ourselves like the widow. We think that we are all alone in the situation that we're dealing with. Sometimes we think, I'm the only person that's ever had to deal with this. I'm the only person that's suffered like this. No one could possibly relate to this problem. So we go it alone. Sometimes we think, well, I'm struggling with this particular sin. But if I were to tell anybody what I'm dealing with, especially in the church... They'll think I'm a horrible human being. They'll shun me and they'll hate me. So I'll go it alone. I'll plead my own case all by myself. I'll bear this burden alone, just like the widow. Maybe after praying day after day, but it turns into month after month, which turns into year after year, you begin to think, well, I'm forgotten. I'm alone. I'm an outcast. Nobody cares about me, not even God. I'm all alone. I have no value. I am worthless. Maybe sometimes we think we don't want to share a request in our Bible study or our home group or in our community group. We don't want to share our our prayer request because there's bigger things than what I'm dealing with to pray for. I don't want to I don't want to bother anybody with my piddly little request because other people have bigger things to deal with. I don't want to bother anybody so I'll just go it alone. I'll do it by myself. Because no one really cares about what I have to say. Friends, I've got more good news for you. We are nothing like the widow. As precious chosen ones of God, we are part of a family. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a child of the king. You have value and worth because of whose child you are. You have been adopted into the family of God and you have a father that deeply loves you. Never, ever forget that because it changes everything. You are not alone. You will never be alone. You have not been abandoned. And you are not vulnerable. Friends, you are protected by the strength of your heavenly father. And you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who are ever present to help bear your burden. When my first child was born, when Josiah was born, I began to read certain passages of scripture very differently. Oh, I'd read them before. I knew that, that God was, was depicted as a father. I, I got that. 
I had read the passage of Abraham offering up his son Isaac dozens of times. But after I had a son, I'll tell you what, I read that passage very differently. When I had that little human, that little child, I experienced a depth of love I had never touched before. And my instinct to protect him from harm was palpable. And as I read scripture, and as I saw this this image of a heavenly father who loves his children, it dawned on me, man, if I as a fallible human being can touch this depth of love, how much more does my heavenly father love me? How much more will he protect me? How much more does he care about my safety? How much more is he concerned about my growth? Infinitely more. Friends, when you are tempted to lose heart, when you are tempted to give up praying, remember who you are. You are a child of the king. He loves you more than you can imagine and he will do anything to protect you. You are not vulnerable and worthless and insignificant. What else do we know? Well, we know that we have an advocate. The widow came all by herself. She had no one to plead her case for her. But you and I, we have an advocate. We have an intercessor who intercedes for us. An advocate is like a defense attorney. It's like that person that goes before the the, the person and the judge. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us right now. When the enemy tells you that you're guilty, Jesus tells the Father that you're forgiven. When the enemy tells you that you are unworthy, that you're disgraceful and you're insignificant, the father tells, Jesus tells the father, she's ours. She's special. And I've got big plans for her. You want to know what else is so amazing about having Jesus as our advocate to the father? It's when you think about the fact that Jesus experienced hardship in this world too. He was tempted to give up. He was rejected. He was overlooked misunderstood and abused. You see, Jesus doesn't just represent us theoretically or theologically. He represents us experientially. So he can empathize with us. He can intercede for us because he knows what it feels like to experience trials and hardship in this life. What else do we know? is that God is pleased to hear our requests. He hasn't forgotten you. Even in the silence, he hasn't forgotten you. He sees you. And he invites you into the throne room of grace to make your requests known to him. In the Old Testament, the Israelites wandered for 40 years. For 40 years, they wandered waiting to get into this land that had been promised to them. And in that time, you better believe they wondered if God had forgotten about them. You better believe that they wondered if God cared for them at all. And they grumbled and they complained. They questioned God and they begged him for deliverance. They were tired of walking around in circles and they begged him for help over and over. They begged him for protection and provision. 
and that they might ultimately find that rest that had been promised them. And what does God say? God says, I have heard the cries of my people. I know you are suffering. I know your afflictions. I know your feet hurt. I know that you're sick of manna. I know that you've got a sunburn. And I know what I'm doing. I know you're suffering, but I need you to trust me. Keep talking to me. Keep your eyes on me and just trust me because I will deliver you. Friends, something really important happens when we take our request to God. Our focus literally moves from our problem onto the solution. Our focus moves from that thing that is causing us to feel hopeless and despair and feel like we want to give up. And our focus moves from that thing onto the one who gives us hope, the God of all hope. He reorients our heart from that place of pain and he brings it to a place of peace. God wants us to cry out to him. That's why he gave us prayer in the first place. That's why he gave us this vehicle, this mechanism through which we could communicate with God. So don't give up. Persist in prayer because he delights in your requests. I believe the most important part of this entire parable is found in the very last question. Jesus ends, he crescendos this parable with a really important question. When the son of man returns, will he find faith on earth? Friends, that's the key to unlocking this entire parable. What did the widow do that was exemplary? Oh yes, we are nothing like her. But she did something that we should absolutely notice and we should emulate. The widow took her request to the only person who could do anything about it. Corrupt or not, the judge was the only person in that community that could solve her problem. Although she was poor, vulnerable, and desperate, she went to the one person who had the power and authority to deal with her pain, to relieve her suffering, and to stop the injustice. So day after day, she asked. Even when she didn't get the response she wanted, she went back again, and again, and again. Why? Because she had faith that one day the judge would respond. And he did. Because faith is the power source behind persistent prayer. You see, there isn't a magic number of how many times you should knock before that door is going to be answered. There isn't a formula for how we ought to plead our case that will persuade God to respond how we'd like and in the timeline that we'd like. You see, a person of faith believes differently about God. He's not a judge that can be bribed or coerced. He cares about our needs, but he's not like a cosmic vending machine that spits out exactly what we ask for simply because we put the right number of prayer coins in. He has promised to bring about justice in his time and in his way. A person of faith continues to take their request to the just judge because they believe he is the only one that can actually deal with their problem. Ted Turner gave up on his faith because his prayers weren't answered in the way he wanted. He saw God like an unjust, caring judge 
So he gave up. He did not persist. And he stopped praying. C.S. Lewis saw God very differently. He too prayed persistently for someone he deeply loved who continued to get sick. C.S. Lewis had a different perspective. You see, his wife was very ill. I believe she had cancer. And every day, C.S. Lewis would go and he would pray for her. He would go to this chapel and pray and continue to pray. And he had an atheist buddy who taught at the same university. One day, this man pulls C.S. Lewis aside and he says, why do you keep torturing yourself? Why do you keep doing this day after day? You keep going praying to your, to your wife, for your wife, to this God that you can't see, and it's not working. It's not changing anything. Why do you keep praying when nothing changes? This is what C.S. Lewis said. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. See, Jesus told this parable to a bunch of people that were guaranteed to face difficult times. He knew that they would be tempted to lose faith and stop praying. See, God isn't always quick about the way he chooses to respond to persistent prayers, but he is always right on time. And while we wait, while we endure, while we persist in prayer without a seeming response, God has the same question for you and I. Will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith at Salem First Baptist? Will he find faith in me? Will he find faith in you? Oh, his delay will prompt some to lose their faith, but others will bolster their faith as they continue to trust and as they wait and as they beg and as they believe. Though they will grow in their faith and they will be changed to take on the heart and the character and the nature of God. Oh, his delay will prompt some to lose their faith. But others will grow in their faith. Others will be changed as they persist in prayer, as they persevere in times of trial, and as they plead their case to the just judge who promises to bring justice to his precious children. That is what faith on earth looks like. Because faith is the power behind persistent prayer.